1: So bourgeois analysts, reformists, and postmodern academics alike are all talking about this supposed culture war that apparently dominates politics today. And as Carla said in uh, her introduction, they describe phenomena like Brexit and also the recent resurgence of Black Lives Matter, amongst other things, as evidence of a clash between this socially conservative, older layer of society on one side and socially liberal, younger, woke layers on the other. And as she also said, this view sidelines economic class as the main dividing line in society in favor of cultural values. And the culture war is presented as as a, a novel way of dealing with politics in a new era. But in actual fact, this is age old denial of class struggle reheated and resold in the language of identity politics. Because the truth is, class struggle is on the agenda today like never before. Just last year, you had back-to-back insurrectionary movements and revolution in one country after another, too many for me to list. And now, the deepest crisis in capitalism's history has been triggered by the coronavirus pandemic, which has brutally exposed class antagonisms. You've got the poor dying in droves or having their lives ruined, their livelihoods destroyed, while the rich get even richer. It's causing billions of people to question a system that shamelessly puts profits before human lives. And the workers and youth are increasingly open to socialism and revolution and revolutionary ideas. Even in the USA, the belly of the beast, as we all heard in the wonderful plenary last night, according to a few polls, Nearly half the population would vote for a socialist president, and the majority of young people would vote for a socialist president, and a third would vote for a communist president. And if the mood of anger and desire for radical change in society hasn't resulted in an explosion of class conflict already, that's only because of the bankruptcy of the leadership of the workers' movement, who have utterly failed at every step to give the working class any sort of lead. So I'd say forget culture war, class war will define the 21st century provided bold leadership comes to the fore. Only the Marxist theory of class struggle can make sense of the current period and offer a road out of the nightmare that capitalism has conjured up. So culture war, the term was actually coined by a US sociologist called James Davison Hunter and he adapted it from Otto von Bismarck's Kulturkampf, which was his persecution of Catholics during German unification in the 1870s, that exploited religious divisions to divert the attention of the masses away from political struggle and important democratic tasks at that time. So Hunter published uh, his main book, Culture Wars, The Struggle to Define America in 1991, the same year that Francis Fukuyama famously declared the end of history, and it's no coincidence that these two analyses came together, because with the collapse of the USSR, the beginning of the 90s, bourgeois commentators were tripping over themselves to declare socialism and class struggle tried and failed. And Hunter argued that the fall of the Soviet Union had caused the axis of political conflict in the USA to shift from left versus rights to traditional, versus progressive. In other words, conservative religious Republicans versus progressive Democrats. And this culture war was a continuation of the social divisions over women and gay liberation movements of the 80s, anti-war protests and civil rights struggles in the 60s and 70s. And of course this analysis divorces all these movements from class content, reducing them to just a battle of differing values. And subsequent writers, have argued that the culture wars increasingly played out online in the 2000s, with the anonymity of the internet giving people freedom to express more and more extreme reactionary views openly, leading to these massive battles between right-wing trolls and so-called social justice warriors on social media or message boards and so on. And by 2020, the analysis holds that conservative authoritarians have now entrenched their grip on political power, assisted by an online army of reactionaries and also uh, mainstream right-wing media moguls like Rupert Murdoch. Uh, The analysis points to demagogues like Donald Trump and Boris Johnson winning power by appealing to nationalism, to racism, blaming migrants and minority groups for social problems and so on. It also argues that traditionalists, uh, in the the manner that was previously described, teamed up with right-wing libertarians to attack politically correct progressives for controlling what people are allowed to say and think, all while authoritarian politicians curtail democratic and political rights for oppressed groups. These authoritarians distract the population by creating bogeymen out of groups like Antifa and Black Lives Matter for threatening peace and security, while at the same time supporting far-right vigilantes who attack and kill them in defense of private property. And then you have movements like the so-called alt right which contains clear fascist overtones, with shock jocks like Steve Bannon, Ben Shapiro, spinning conspiracy theories about cultural Marxists undermining Western civilization. And the COVID-19 pandemic has also been dragged into the culture war, as we've seen by the likes of Donald Trump, exploiting the anxiety of precarious lower class, lower middle class um, um, groups by suggesting that the virus is exaggerated by liberals or by China um, to undermine personal freedoms. Now, none of this is actually particularly new. We've seen these processes unfold before. Many times in history, the bourgeoisie have divided the population on cultural lines, creating situations where opportunistic demagogues can advance themselves. And I would say that all this recent culture war actually describes is the fallout from the collapse of the liberal center ground in the last couple of decades after the capitalist system it upholds provided nothing but years of rising inequality and misery. The liberal wing of the establishment actually had nothing to do with winning advances for workers, for youth, for minority groups in the first place. All of this was accomplished by class struggle from below. The system granted concessions in times of relative stability, but that's a thing of the past. We're now in a period of crisis and the bourgeoisie have to squeeze workers and youth through pay cuts, layoffs, reduction of rights and rising living costs to preserve profits. And when the liberals and the reformists have been in charge in the last period, they've carried out these tasks of the ruling class dutifully attacking workers while at the same time preaching the values of inclusion and political correctness which has totally discredited them. And amongst some layers, those values themselves After the 2008 crisis, the ruling class was forced to divert rising anger over cuts and austerity towards scapegoats, particularly migrant workers, and now they've lost control over the ugly forces that they summoned to the surface. And the most degenerate layer of the ruling class is now in the driver's seat people who are happy to exploit the worst instincts of the most backwards and reactionary layers of society and trample all over the bourgeoisie's own democratic institutions to pursue their narrow interests now you see donald trump right now threatening to mobilize the far-right proud boys to contest the election result in the usa if he loses But none of this was a conscious plan by some cabal of authoritarians in the way that Hunter suggests. These are symptoms of capitalist degeneration and resulting social polarization. That's what's destroyed the basis for the center ground. The big bourgeois, the serious wing of the bourgeois and their mouthpieces are desperate for stability, but their only solution is to promote a democratic establishment that is hated and discredited. And they sometimes try to fight the culture war themselves by disingenuously pandering to diversity, like when Disney donated chump change to the NAACP or Sony put a BLM theme on the PlayStation 5 or democratic speaker Nancy Pelosi wore a West African kente cloth in solidarity with the BLM. This disgusting hypocrisy by agents of the very same exploitative, oppressive capitalist system. And the reformists for their part um, can't see any way else. They're despairing at a lack of results from class struggle, and as a result, sections of them have fully embraced the culture war. And this also has precedence. In the 1960s, for example, the Euro-communist splits from the Stalinist Communist Party in Britain, influenced by a very selective reading of the, the weakest side of, of Gramsci, declared that the old class struggle methods were outdated. This was a particularly common view amongst their student wing and more petty bourgeois wing. And instead they turned towards so-called cultural politics, as they put it, chasing after feminist movements, environmentalism, community support groups, and so on. Basically activism, identity politics, divorced from class struggle. They were hunting for shortcuts in effect because they were frustrated with the lack of results from the working class. And the same basic idea prevails today. And having abandoned real class analysis and methods all the reformists can do is mirror the liberal wing of the bourgeois, you know, tutting about the nasty political climates, fighting back with impotent identity politics, calling on workers and youth to support lesser evil bourgeois candidates in elections, while offering no hope and no plan for tangible improvements. And this class collaboration and tokenism actually empowers the right wing of the so-called culture war because it makes them look like a radical alternative to the despised status quo that the reformists and liberals are propping up. Um, You know, Johnson exploited this mood over Brexit when he was proroguing parliament and so on and taking on the courts. He presented himself as standing up for the common man and speaking truth to power. So the main thing to understand, I would say, is that society is polarizing drastically under a crisis that has hit workers and the middle classes as well with the worst decline in living standards in 200 years. And in the absence of bold leadership from the left, it's the demagogic right that has been able to profit from this by appealing in a distorted way to sections of society that are fed up with the status quo and they get away with it because the left leaders haven't explained the truth they haven't drawn out the class issues they haven't pointed their fingers at the bankers and the bosses for failing to invest for creating more jobs failing to create more jobs and so on when Nigel Farage was blaming migrants for taking jobs off british workers in 2010 and 2015 what was labor doing Labour was agreeing with him and putting anti-migrant slogans on its mugs. When progressive Scottish workers and youth voted to leave the UK to stick it to Westminster, what did Labour do? They joined the Tories on their platform defending the union of the UK. Um, And where there have been political leaders offering consistent opposition from the left, like Jeremy Corbyn, at least until the Blairites destroyed him, they've proved very popular. Because the class struggle hasn't been overtaken by the culture war, What's happened is capitalism, in its state of senile decay, has dredged scum up to the surface, and nobody is offering workers and youth a class-based alternative. There's a clear influence of postmodernism and identity politics on the theory of culture war. We've got lots of articles and videos about these topics on on, on Marxist.com uh, to flesh this out. Uh, but I read a book recently called The New Working Class by Claire Ainslie, who's just recently been taken on as uh, Sir Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party's new policy advisor. And she starts by saying the following, social class is not a fixed concept, but a construct with a purpose dependent on context. So for Ainslie and postmodern writers that she draws on, mainly people like uh, Pierre Bordeaux, class is something you identify as, alongside race, gender, sexuality, and so on. And from this idealist perspective, the old view of class is out of touch. And she further writes, in the days when the working class was politically organized in the form of trade unions, easy to address as a mass in factories and would respond to the term working class, democratic representation and communication had a more linear path. Today, any party wanting to appeal to the new working class needs to have a first-hand understanding of the democrat- demographics, pardon me, affiliations and identities of the diverse peoples who comprise this large constituency. As previously noted, the fact that this group doesn't identify as a coherent whole doesn't mean it doesn't exist, but it cannot be tidied into a convenient identity group. I'll apologize in advance. I'll be quoting a lot of nonsense over the course of this talk. Um, But we should say, at least the working class exists for Ainsley, which is better than some of her ilk, but it's splintered into different identities, the traditional working class, the new working class, the precariat, and so on. Uh, She further says, picturing a typical working class person in Britain 30 or 40 years ago, would probably have brought to mind a worker employed in a large workplace, like a factory, doing partly skilled manual work, most likely a man and most likely whites. That has all changed. The new working class undertake hundreds of different types of jobs in today's economy, employed as cleaners, shop workers, bartenders, cooks, carers, teaching assistants, secretaries, delivery workers, and so on. I'm pretty sure all of those jobs have existed for more than 30 to 40 years, but there we go. Her analysis is actually every bit as rigid and dogmatic as the old view of class she mischaracterizes. All it does is replace the working class as one static homogenous group with four or five static homogenous groups. And as a matter of fact, Marxists aren't trying to tidy class into an identity group, as she suggests. We've never said the working class is one unitary mass. There are different kinds of work, different backgrounds, different traditions, different levels of class consciousness. There are more advanced and backward layers, more and less exploited and deprived layers within the working class. But nevertheless, we argue that class is an objective social relation to the means of production. If you sell your labour power for a wage, you're a worker. You can identify as whatever you like, but that is a material fact. And there is no n- new working class, there's just one that is more thoroughly exploited than in the past as a result of the crisis of capitalism. It is true that the trade union movement has been weakened over the course of years by uh, the portrayals of its leaders and it's also true that uh, industrial working class communities have been decimated by Deindustrialization industrialization and by austerity. And all of this has an effect on the class struggle, on the confidence and consciousness of layers of the working class. But class remains a material fact. And it's still in the interests of the entire working class to fight collectively for its shared interests. Um, the journalist, economist, self-described Marxist, and now seemingly Sir Keir Starmer's biggest fan, uh, Paul Mason, who I'm sure you've heard of, also embraces the culture war and he explicitly attacks the orthodox Marxist view of class. He says that the 2019 general election shattered a theory of class struggle that no longer describes reality in which any cultural disconnect between workers and the left can be overcome with left-wing economic policies. He goes on. The working class is bifurcating into into two distinct and sometimes culturally hostile groups. This is evidenced by the collapse of labor support in small town, ex-industrial communities, simultaneously with its loss of support amongst young educated workers in the cities to the Greens, Lib Dems and nationalists. But if we go back just two years to the 2017 election, Labour, running on a left-wing programme under the same left-wing leader, won the majority in all working layers of society. The Tories only beat them amongst retirees, so when the left leaders offer actual opposition on class lines, surface level divisions can be overcome. course eventually Corbyn was driven to defeat and there are reasons for that that I won't describe here but the point is um Mason and Ainsley ignore this point and in fact incredibly Ainsley's book came out just after the 2017 general election she must have been writing it while it was happening and it barely mentions the fact that Corbyn won Labour's best results since 1945. I can't imagine why perhaps it would undermine her conclusions. Okay so um, the working class has changed and class struggle is a thing of the past why is this well according to mason and to ainsley the period of so-called neoliberalism since the 1980s has destroyed the old basis for an organized working class these large communities based around full time work in industrial production what's well, certainly true that after the second world war um, the capitalists increasingly went after profitable short-term speculation rather than investing in real production and sold off big sections of industry and that, of course, accelerated in the Thatcher era. It's also true that the crisis of overproduction has led to an epidemic of un- unemployments and underemployments. Millions of people are now in part-time work compared to the past and bogus self-employment as well in the gig economy and so on. But rather than offering any resistance to this, the labor movement leaders rolled over and accepted the new normal. The Blairites in the Labor Party in particular becoming enthusiastic agents of the capitalist system. This so-called period of neoliberalism is just symptomatic of the capitalist crisis of overproduction being dumped on the shoulders of the working class following the end of the post-war boom, which saw a 30 year relative increase in prosperity. And Mason goes one further arguing that the experience of neoliberalism has changed the consciousness of the working class for the worse. He asks why, for instance, despite plenty of provocations and consistent attacks on wages and living standards, um, workers in Britain haven't revolted in the neoliberal period. And he explains, fear of change, political consumerism, how long, sorry? 20, sorry. That's fine. Fear of change, political consumerism, weak organizational loyalty, and psychological insecurity, coupled with multi-generational experience of defeats and four decades of market atomization have made workers more conservative, basically because they're afraid of losing what they've got. Now, of course, the most oppressed layers of the working class with the least to lose can often be the most radical. Look at the Russian Revolution. Look at the revolution in sudan last year and consciousness we accept has always been and will always be fundamentally very conservative it takes a lot for people to risk pay to risk their livelihoods and homes to go out and fight and more to the point why would they bother when there's nobody leading the way or inspiring confidence again the rotten role of the workers leadership over the last few decades has far more to do with this situation, any neoliberal ideology on workers' part. Uh, Mason also says that the capitalists have ex- started exploiting workers in new ways, uh, no longer just work, but interest payments, rents, gambling profits, overpricing of goods, services provided by unchallengeable monopolies, the commercialization and privatization of previously public goods, services, and spaces, and the enclosure of the commons. So capitalists exploit workers through rents, interest, monopolization and privatization. These are hardly new developments. This has been going on for quite a while, like long preceding the so-called neoliberal period. But nevertheless, all of this tots up to an identity that Mason calls uh, the neoliberal self, which is based on individualism, hedonism, Fatalism and where people are defined by what they have consumed, not where they work, and almost premised on the idea that the market is an intelligent machine that knows better than any individual human brain. Now, once again, this is not a new idea. And um, I, I, those of you who attended Daniel's talk on academic Marxism will remember uh, his, uh, his analysis at the Frankfurt School, where you had these petty bourgeois pseudo-Marxist academics in the 1920s, who were basically incredibly pessimistic of what they saw as a lull in the workers' movements and drew the conclusion that consumerism, pop culture, um, and so on had turned the working class into mindless, apathetic zombies, incapable of struggle and actually kind of in love with authoritarianism. Uh, Well, I think it's fair to say that a bit more class struggle went on in the 20th century after that. I mean, these were similar to the conclusions that sections of the left and so-called Marxists were making of the French working class, they said were bourgeoisified and stupefied by washing machines and and, and hoovers before they launched one of the greatest revolutions, and revolutionary movements um, in in living memory at the time. But nevertheless, um, Mason goes on to describe the so-called traditional working class which he characterizes as as older people in the north of England, the Midlands and Wales, uh, who he defines as hopelessly brainwashed and conservative. He says, the former industrial working class in the Midlands and the North has detached itself from the values that are now core to our party, We are now fighting a strong and virulent nativism, the assumption by older white workers that their family history entitles them to go to the front of the queue for public services and veto over who can live and work in their community. Pardon me? By contrast, He says, the new diverse and network workforce of the big cities and their struggles over wages, rent, zero hours, women's rights, migration rights, LGBTQ plus issues, and above all the climate, is the strongest agent of change we have. Now, if there's a grain of truth in this analysis, there has been a massive and widening economic generational divide opening up in the last period with younger workers bearing the brunt of the crisis of capitalism in the form of underemployment and debt. It's also true that compared to the past, the youth and students are increasingly proletarianized and radicalizing to the left. But all Mason's analysis really shows is his contempt, is really quite toxic contempt for a whole swathe of the working class who as far as he uh, uh, is concerned are beyond help. And to be clear, do Marxists think that workers can't have racist views? Of course we don't think that. Of course workers can have racist views. We don't, we don't prettify or, or fetishize the working class. But the shared in, interest in fighting collectively against common exploitation can cut across these prejudices. You see this in any strike. And the unified working class uh, in struggle, is the only force that's capable of ultimately eradicating racism and oppression at their source, which is the capitalist system itself. And as far as the, you know, the enucleated racist northern working class goes, right now, with Johnson's election promises abandoned in the north, uh, and with northern towns and cities placed under onerous lockdowns, Um, There's plenty of rising class anger amongst the so-called traditional working class that could be exploited and directed in a positive progressive direction by left leadership if one uh, existed that was willing to take on that task. But okay, Um, accepting all of this for the sake of argument, how does the left fight this culture war? Ainsley tells us that because the working class is more disparate, more atomized, and occupies multiple social identities, we need, uh, I quote, a shift towards new organizing principles away from social class based on national identity or progressive values. So basically, it's not so much a case of what you're selling as much as how you sell it. This is postmodern idealism in a nutshell, the idea that you can change political reality by playing around with words. But OK, what sort of values do we need? Sir Keir Starmer's new head of policy, after much thought and research, concludes uh, the values that voters rate highest across all social classes in Britain today are family, fairness, hard work, and decency, followed by equality and freedom. I mean, this is hardly earth shattering stuff, is it? These are completely hollow phrases that could be filled with any content that you like. And unsurprisingly, she fills it with reformist content, advocating a mixed economy of states, market and individual responsibility. Well, we've had that for decades in various forms and look where it's brought us to precisely the problems she's trying to solve. Mason agrees with Ainsley's diagnosis in the main, but he actually doubles down on the culture war even harder. He says, British politics are now primarily influenced by values, not single class identities or raw economic interests. We can't reverse our way out of that situation or ignore it. We have to fight our way through it to a more advantageous situation. Now, Marxists accept that culture, tradition and so on have an effect on politics we're not vulgar economic determinists but economic interests are the determining factor in the last analysis even comparatively inactive layers of the working class can be and are pulled into collective struggle when push really comes to shove look at the suburban commuters who uh, triggered the gilets Jaunes protest in france recently for example and again this deeply fractured value orientated working class that makes an describes and criticizes, voted en masse for Labour in 2017. And it wasn't Corbyn's ability to tell nice convincing stories that led to his popularity, it was his anti-austerity program that was presented as a genuine alternative to the triangulation and betrayals of new Labour and the Liberals, and also the the, the brute um, austerity of of the Tory party and the coalition government. The culture war boils down in the last analysis to reactionary identity politics, abandoning class struggle, and fighting on the basis of the same divide and rule created by the bosses in the first place. These are the conclusions of pessimistic, solipsistic, petty-bourgeois renegades who don't understand politics at anything but the very surface level. They can't handle the contradiction of workers voting against their interests. So they conclude they're just stupid xenophobes, which means that the enlightened petty bourgeois leaders of the left have to create a narrative on their level. So unsurprisingly, Mason in particular, sees the Brexit votes as strong evidence of his arguments. He thinks that the vote to leave the EU um, by millions of traditional working class people showed that they'd embraced reactionary nationalism and abandoned left-wing politics. Although many of them voted for Corbyn's left-wing program in 2017, being won over uh, from parties like UKIP, in part because Labour promised to accept the result of the referendum. And these same layers are now rapidly turning against Johnson. Now, we'd spoken about this at length and written about it as well. There are lots of reasons for the Brexit vote, and racism and anti-migrant sentiments were definitely a part of it. There's no question about that. But it was also seen as a chance to give Westminster a kicking after communities in the so-called Red Wall were hit by decades of cuts and austerity, usually carried out by Labour councils, as a matter of fact. Brexit was in part a protest against an establishment that was correctly felt to have ignored these people. And by ultimately accepting a second referendum position, which Mason, by the way, pushed very hard for, Labour became indelibly identified with this hated establishment. And that coupled with Corbyn's weakness in resisting the Blairites who were undermining him uh, is ultimately the reason why they lost in 2019.
0: 30 minutes gone.
1: Thank you. So Mason and Ainsley both conclude that Brexit shows that class-based economic arguments have failed, and their values-based alternative boils down to moving to the rights. Basically, it's a case of if you can't beat them, join them. Ainsley says that legitimate concerns, uh, always a popular phrase, over immigration means that a points-based system for migration should be introduced, which meets the needs of employers and the public alike. In other words, she advocates reactionary attacks on migrants, in her view, because the working class don't like migrants. Mason goes a lot further. He says that not only should labor accept the limits on immigration, but also, I quote, reassure traditional working class communities that we support NATO, the nuclear deterrence, a well-equipped military rooted in civil society, a police force that cares about the victims of crime, and an intelligence service that can fight terrorism effectively. So. In addition to accepting tax on immigrants, we also need to get behind British imperialism and the oppressive capitalist states at a time when thousands of progressive youth, in particular, and workers as well, have recently hit the streets to protest racist police violence. Uh, Although looking at Labour's abstention on the war crimes bill and the spycots bill, it does seem that Starmer has been taking Mason's advice to heart. On top of all this, um, Mason advocates meeting, as he says, the combined force of the right and far-right with a class collaborationist pact of the left and the centre. In other words, lining up with the Liberals. This kind of popular frontism has never worked once in history. Every single time this strategy has been attempted, the Liberals have betrayed the working class because their material interests ultimately align with the capitalist system and not with the working class. And that's not a question of values, that's a fact. It's especially absurd as a conclusion to draw, looking at the last five years in which the Blairites and liberals have led a relentless dirty war against the left, while Corbyn bent over backwards to win them over to no avail. And now Starmer is kicking all left wingers out of positions of authority in the Labour Party to the delight of the, uh, the hedge fund managers who finance his campaign. The centre has no interest in allying with the left. Meanwhile, uh, Starmer is uh, fighting the culture war, as it were, by embracing patriotism which flows from the empirical logic of the Labour right wing. They say, well, Corbyn was rejected because he wasn't seen as loyal enough to the country. He seems to be more interested in people who were suffering very, very far away than watching the Queen's speech and bowing to the Cenotaph. Therefore, Labour needs to out-Tory the Tories on patriotism, pandering to socially conservative, so-called blue Labour values of Queen and country. This opportunism, uh, I don't think it's going to work. All it'll do is push Johnson, the Tories, even further to the right. But Mason defends this move in terms of the culture war, um, in terms of talking to patriotic workers in language they understand to sneak left-wing policies into the system. Now, first of all, these policies are nowhere to be seen from Labour under Keir Starmer. As a matter of fact, their policy programme so far has been very right-wing. Um, And moreover, abandoning the language of class in favor of chauvinism and nationalism won't change the class content of that language. All it does is provide a left cover for these poisonous ideas, allowing them to more effectively distract and disarm the workers. And in reality, if Labour did win a general election on the basis of subordinating itself to the interests of the capitalists and their language, that will just mean it will have to obey the logic of the capitalist system from government and carry out cuts and attacks on workers. So Mason's pragmatism amounts to less than nothing. All it will see, at best, is Labour discredited from within power, as has happened to so many social democratic parties across um, the world. Um, Marxists have been having similar arguments with opportunists in the labor movements for decades, for centuries even. I was reading Lenin's polemics against the Mensheviks and social chauvinists like Kautsky, uh, who advocated class collaboration and defense of the fatherland during the first world war. And Lenin writes, advocacy of class collaboration, abandonment of the idea of socialist revolution and revolutionary methods of struggle adaptation to bourgeois nationalism, losing sight of the fact that the borderlines of nationality and country are historically transient, making a fetish of bourgeois legality, renunciation of the class viewpoint and the class struggle, for fear of repelling the broad masses of the population. Such, doubtlessly, are the ideological foundations of opportunism." Now this was written in 1914, but it could have been written about Paul Mason in 2020, although at the very least, Kautsky and his ilk, uh, you could argue, had heads to lose, unlike Paul Mason. Lenin goes on, it is from such soil uh, of opportunism that the present chauvinist and patriotic frame of mind of most second international leaders has developed. The war has merely brought out rapidly and saliently the true measure of this prevalence. And this has parallels today with the crisis triggered by the coronavirus pandemic, which is often spoken about in terms of a war. Then as now, the opportunists in the labor movement couldn't see under the surface. Far from being hypnotized by nationalism and defense of the fatherland during the First World War, the experience of that brutal conflict pushed workers to the brink of world revolution. And today, We're on the precipice of the biggest crisis in the history of capitalism, a slump that will dwarf, has already dwarfed 2008, that will dwarf 1929. You'll see double digits wiped off the GDPs of the richest countries, tens of millions of jobs to be lost. The status quo turned upside down for billions. And the way the ruling class has bungled the crisis in one country after another is creating a huge groundswell of radicalization and discontent. This won't be expressed right away or all at once. There's always a lag between consciousness uh, and action, but it will inevitably come to the surface. And you started to see it pushing through here and there. So while Mason Ainsley and the cultural analysts are worrying about how far right they have to move on patriotism and immigration to win the next election, over in the USA, 10% of the population participated in the insurrectionary Black Lives Matter movement, which sent shockwaves worldwide, where we saw kids throwing statues of slave owners in Britain, in Bristol, uh, into rivers. Um, And and on top of that, you've had a second revolutionary movements uh, in Lebanon. Uh, The red October we saw last year in Latin America is starting to heat up again. We've seen workers revolting in Thailand, Indonesia and Nigeria. And in Britain, the reactionary incompetent Tory government has presided over the worst death toll from COVID-19 in Europe and is now literally stealing food from children's mouths all while rewarding themselves with pay rises this will absolutely antagonize people on class basis it will absolutely draw starker and starker class lines in society and in my view this culture war will be cut across very quickly in the next few years it's already being cut across i frankly think this kind of language is rather outdated right now because the working class won't accept the destruction of their livelihoods well-being and conditions just because the bosses and labor bureaucrats wave the national flag. This process won't be a straight line. We will see radicalization both to to the left and to the right in the next period, but class collaboration and nationalist pandering will get us nowhere. This liberal postmodern obsession with values and narrative, all it does is artificially divide workers against one another. It's an admission of defeat and despair by people with absolutely no understanding of the working class whose values they claim to accommodate. So I say, let's let the clever academics keep their culture war will stand on the firm foundation of the Marxist theory of class struggle, which calls for nothing less than the entire working class to unite and overthrow this rotten system. And I'll end with Lenin uh, who wrote that the working class cannot play its world revolutionary role unless it wages a ruthless struggle against this backsliding spinelessness, subservience to opportunism and unparalleled vulgarization of the theories of Marxism. And this ruthless struggle is precisely what the international Marxist tendency and socialist appeal uh, must wage. It's the importance of all the theoretical discussions we've been having today. um, And over the course of this school, we have to arm ourselves with the real ideas of class struggle, take them into the movements, cut through the nonsense and win the best layers of the workers and youth to our banner. So we can build a revolutionary organization capable of transforming society for the better. And that task, especially in the midst of this terrible pandemic has never been more urgent
0: thanks for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode of marx's voice you can subscribe to our podcast through soundcloud itunes or any major podcast provider or visit our website at www.socialist.net and if you're able to Please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.